Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, one of the things that happens to a lot of people when they start meditating, and it definitely happened to me, is that you might become more aware of your thoughts. And as you become more aware of your thoughts, you may notice that many of them are venomously self-critical. You might notice this background swirl of judgments and worries and regrets that can make your life a lot more miserable than it has to be. Again, I'm speaking from genuine personal experience here. Oftentimes, some of the most pernicious and most harmful thoughts revolve around our relationship to food and our bodies. Longtime listeners may have heard me say this before, and I think this is something more men should say out loud. But I often find myself in spirals of self-laceration when I walk past a reflective surface, especially if I'm wearing a bathing suit, for example. The visible abs I prided myself on back in my 30s are not here anymore, and the thoughts that follow this observation can be pretty nasty. And my inner weather can have outer consequences. Maybe I start fanatically counting my calories, or maybe I'm so caught up in obsessing over food that I'm barely present at mealtime. Or maybe I get so into the habit of beating myself up that I extend that aggression to other people in my orbit. So all that is the bad news. The good news is that there's a way out of this, at least in my experience. Hence the two-part series we're doing on the show this week, which we're calling the Anti-Diet Series. This is episode two, by the way. If you haven't heard the first episode with the actress Jamila Jamil, I highly recommend you check it out because she's amazing. Today's guest argues that the dysregulation I just described inside my own head isn't just common, it lives in just about all of us, but also that it has a common source, which she calls diet culture. What's more, she says there's another better way to interact with our food. It's called intuitive eating. I should say this is something I've been practicing personally for a couple of years now, and to use an overused phrase, it has genuinely changed my life. My guest today is Christy Harrison. She's an anti-diet registered dietitian and nutritionist, a certified intuitive eating counselor, and a certified eating disorders specialist who has struggled with disordered eating herself. She's come out the other side of it, and she's written a book called Anti-Diet, and today she's here to talk about how to transform your relationship with food and your body. In this interview, we talk about Christy's personal experience with eating disorders, the problem with diet culture, the deep historical roots of diet culture, the scientific evidence against dieting, and then the principles of intuitive eating. Just a few notes before we go for it. This conversation, as you might imagine, touches on some sensitive topics, such as eating disorders and body image. Some of these issues may carry an emotional charge for some listeners, so just a heads up on that. On an audio tip, you may also hear a tiny bit of airplane noise in the distant background at certain moments. That's uh, what happens when you record remotely during a pandemic. Also, you may notice that Christy's voice at times is a tiny bit breathy. That's not because she's nervous, it's because she was very pregnant when we recorded this. By the way, if you like what you hear today, I've got another bit of good news. We've tapped Christy to be the instructor in our brand new anti-diet challenge over on the 10% Happier app. In this seven-day challenge, we're going to help you build a better relationship with food and your body. The approach is backed by science and supercharged with meditation. In this challenge, Christy and I are going to talk through the principles of intuitive eating in a series of short videos and then 
After the video is complete, Christy will lead you in a guided audio meditation to actually kind of pound the lessons of intuitive eating into your neurons. The Anti-Diet Challenge kicks off on Monday, December 6th. To join, just download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps by visiting 10percent.com. That's all one word spelled out. If you already have the app, just open it up and follow the instructions. If you're not already a 10% Happier subscriber, you can join us by starting a free trial. That will give you access to the challenge along with our entire app. If I'm honest, if you had pitched me this idea of transforming my relationship to food 10 years ago, I wouldn't have just discounted it. I probably would have told you that I didn't need any kind of reset at all. But I also, as is often the case, would have been entirely wrong. So I really do hope you'll consider joining us for this one. The stuff that Christy teaches has had a huge impact on me. We will get started with Christy Harrison right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Christy Harrison, 
Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dan. It's great to be here. It's great to see you again. We had a lot of fun recording the challenge. It's nice to get together once again. You know, we didn't get to talk that much about it while we were recording the challenge. So I'd love to hear a little bit more, if you're comfortable, about how you went through a period of time where your relationship to food and body image was, I think the term of art here is disordered. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable talking about that? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, my background is that I actually was an intuitive eater growing up. I had a really peaceful relationship with food. I was fortunate and privileged, really, to have enough food growing up. So we never had that food insecurity piece interfering in my relationship with food. And I was always in a smaller body, so I never had anyone telling me I needed to lose weight, putting me on a diet. So I was able to sort of have that intuitive relationship with food that we're all born with that lasted until I was about 20 years old, actually. And so I was able to eat when I was hungry, stop when I was full, eat what satisfied me, figure out what that was, just sort of discover foods that I liked and make my own snacks when I got old enough. So it was really lucky sort of upbringing, I think, because a lot of people don't get that. But when I was 20, I went and studied abroad in Paris and gained a little bit of weight while I was there. I had switched birth control pills, so I think that was part of it. And also just all the baguettes and the cheese, you know, (laughs) delicious. So I gained some weight and then suddenly like everything that I had been hearing about diets and the need to lose weight and how you lose weight and calories, like all that just sort of came rushing to the fore because I had grown up around it. You know, I'd grown up around people who were dieting and talking about that stuff. So even though it was never imposed on me, it was sort of like filed away in the archives ready for me when I did gain some weight. And so pretty quickly, I started restricting what I was eating, started exercising to try to lose weight and got into some pretty disordered stuff fairly quickly because it was the early days of the internet. This was like 2001, 2002, not the earliest days, but, you know, the early days of like being able to Google something and find a message board about it. And so I got into calorie counting. I got into Atkins, which was sort of becoming a big trend in the U.S. at the time. And when I got home from my study abroad, it was really like in it with diet culture. And pretty quickly tumbled into what I now know was a diagnosable eating disorder. I never actually got diagnosed at the time, but, you know, I was in this pretty toxic relationship with food in my body of restricting, under eating during the day, often binging at night. And the binges would sort of get more and more intense the more I restricted and then over-exercising to try to compensate and then wash, rinse, repeat, basically, the next day and the next day and the next. And through months of that sort of pattern, I developed a lot of other symptoms, a lot of health problems as well. I lost my period for about a year. I was going from doctor to doctor trying to figure out what was going on. I was having a lot of digestive issues, fatigue, brain fog. And when you have nebulous issues like that, I think especially with hormonal stuff going on too, Even back then, even in, I guess this was probably now 2002, there was a lot of wellness kind of stuff out there, you know, alternative medicine suggestions of like, oh, cut out gluten, cut out this, try this herb, go to a naturopath, all these different things. And so I was definitely sort of in that mode of just 
trying different alternative modalities, trying different diets, but also still going to a lot of Western doctors and trying to figure out what was going on, different specialists. And nobody could tell me, you know, this is, I think, in retrospect, what weight stigma really does to people who are struggling with food and body issues. Because as I mentioned, I've always been in a relatively thin body, but I was never, quote unquote, thin enough by provider's eyes, I guess. I was never emaciated. So people didn't suspect me of having an eating disorder and didn't really ask like, well, could this issue with your period or these other symptoms be due to food and, you know, what's going on with your relationship with food? Like, are you eating enough? How is your relationship with exercise? What are you doing? Are you taking enough days off? Are you pushing yourself beyond your limits? You know, I think if people had started asking me those questions, I might have still been in denial that I had a problem, but at least perhaps it could have planted a seed. But as it was, I just didn't really get that sort of support. And I knew something was wrong, but I sort of just was struggling on my own to figure it out. And so that was all at the beginning of my career as a journalist. And so at the time, I was so obsessed with food and nutrition and health that those were the beats I gravitated towards. And that's what I sort of built my career around. And so I started working in different magazines and food media, environmental magazines as well, and was really just kind of obsessed with sustainability and the Michael Pollan sort of style of eating, like eat food, not too much, mostly plants, that kind of thing. But that was actually before that book even came out. It was like The Omnivore's Dilemma, which was kind of all about eating local as low on the food chain as possible, sort of the problems with the food system, all of that stuff I was really obsessed with. And so I think that sort of drove me further actually into one part of my eating disorder, which was orthorexia, like the obsession with healthy eating, the obsession with eating in a sort of clean and pure way. But I also had some really positive influences, I think, too, from an old boyfriend who was kind of a foodie, like to go on food adventures and expose me to a lot of different kinds of foods and made me feel like I had to be more adventurous and not as restrictive. So that was one thing I think that helped pull me out of the most restrictive and problematic behaviors of my eating disorder. And then continuing to work in food media and eventually ending up at Gourmet Magazine, I think was helpful in starting to come out of that. But the real turning point, I think, for me was discovering the book Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And I know you had Evelyn on the podcast before, and she's a friend of both of ours and just a wonderful person. And I discovered the book because I was starting to research my own book that I never ended up writing about emotional eating because at the time I identified as an emotional eater. Felt like, you know, I'm just out of control with food. Whenever I get access to certain foods, I just eat them in this emotional way where I can't stop. And what's the deal with that? What are the origins of that? And so through that research, I discovered intuitive eating. I brought that into my own therapy with a therapist who was really more specialized in like anxiety, somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy, and a lot of mindfulness. And so that's where I really first discovered meditation and self-compassion. And I think intuitive eating just sort of plugged right in with those practices and made a lot of sense to me, both as someone who had been an intuitive eater growing up and sort of practiced that for 20 years of my life, 
and as someone who is newly discovering self-compassion and meditation and mindfulness, like it just really resonated with where I was. Note to the listener, we're going to take a deep dive into what exactly intuitive eating is and how to do it. But we're on the line here with somebody who's really interesting, and I want to stay with some sort of background issues before we dive into the practicality. Christy, in your book, Anti-Diet, you talk about the diet culture and its pernicious impacts. You listed a bunch of aspects of the diet culture that some listeners may feel like, well, that doesn't seem that bad, like the Atkins or not having too much gluten or, you know, eating healthy food. Like, what's the problem there? <laughs> so what, what is the problem there? What's your beef with the diet culture? Yeah, I think my beef with diet culture is that it really interferes in people's relationships with food. It makes them so overwrought and also makes people feel like they need to sort of follow an outside guru or plan or program or something other than trusting their own inner wisdom. And intuitive eating has gentle nutrition as one of its 10 principles, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a bit. So it's not like nutrition is not at all a part of intuitive eating, but intuitive eating is really this peaceful, easy relationship with food where you're not overthinking things, where you are able to trust your instincts, your bodily cues, your desires, following your sense of pleasure and satisfaction through this process of sort of getting obsessed with health and nutrition, I realized just how much discourse around those things is really problematic, is really harmful to people, actually. It takes them so out of this ability to trust themselves, makes them feel so guilty and ashamed and wrong and bad for eating what feels pleasurable, what feels satisfying for eating when they're hungry, right? Because when you're following a diet, and really when I say diet, it's sort of like even just loosely, quote unquote, watching it. You don't have to be on a specific plan or program or protocol or whatever. You can just be trying to eat healthy by diet culture standards. I think what often happens is people do get restricted. They get deprived of enough energy, of enough calories overall. And they also get deprived of the variety and the sort of fun foods that they love and the culturally relevant foods oftentimes too. And so with that deprivation, what happens is we get into this sort of cycle where the deprivation builds up to such a high degree that we then sort of give in. We like have to eat all the food or we have to eat the food that was once forbidden and off limits. So we see this sort of deprivation driving people to then consume to the point often of discomfort. I don't like to use the term overeat, but I say more like rebound eating or makeup eating because it's really eating to make up for the deprivation you've been experiencing. And so when that happens, we then paradoxically end up eating more of those forbidden foods, end up eating more food overall than we might have if we had just been free and easy with food and allowing ourselves to have as much as we want, whatever we want, you know, with some consideration perhaps of nutrition and health, but having that kind of take its natural perspective, having that be not the be all and end all of our relationships with food. Is it correct to say that there's conclusive evidence that diets do not work? Yeah, there definitely is really strong evidence that diets don't work. And when I say don't work, what I really mean is in the long term, right? Because I think most people would agree if they're 
doing some sort of intervention that's supposed to be helpful for their health. They don't want it to work, quote unquote, just for a year or two or, you know, maybe three or four, or they don't want it to be something where they're six months on, six months off, you know, cycling back and forth. They want it to be sustainable. They want it to be something that's actually going to help them long term. And unfortunately, with diets, we just don't see that that's the case. We just don't see them being sustainable or helpful or health promoting in the long term. In fact, most diets fail within a year to five years. Actually, the sort of lowest point of anyone's weight loss with a diet is usually between six months and a year. And then they end up putting the weight back on slowly over the next four years or so. If not, you know, some people don't even lose weight to begin with on a diet, right? Some people, their bodies are really good at sort of defending their natural set weight range and they just won't budge. Research actually shows that up to two-thirds of people regain more weight than they lost on a diet. And again, when I say diet, it's like could be a quote-unquote lifestyle change. It doesn't have to be like specifically, you know, Atkins or keto or Weight Watchers or Noom or one of the newer ones, you know. And I will say, too, that this weight cycling that people do when they go on diets is actually really harmful to health in and of itself. So regardless of what weight you started out, the more you weight cycle, the more you lose and regain, lose and regain, lose and regain, wherever you started out, wherever you end up, it's actually riskier for your health to cycle like that than it is to stay the same weight, even if that weight is a higher weight. So there's a lot of evidence that weight cycling actually puts people at higher risk of a lot of the things that get blamed on weight itself, like heart disease, diabetes, certain forms of cancer, early mortality, that actually a lot of that could be explained by just weight cycling. And weight stigma is a separate thing. It's discrimination against higher weight people. And experiencing weight stigma also puts people at higher risk of those things that tend to get blamed on weight itself. And so when we think about that, the fact that weight science doesn't control for weight stigma and weight cycling, I've really almost never seen a study that controls for those things unless it's a study that's specifically looking at weight stigma and weight cycling and the effects of those. And what if we lived in a society where higher weight people did not feel compelled to go on diets, did not feel compelled to shrink their bodies, did not feel discriminated against and bullied and shamed for the size and shape of their bodies? Like, how much healthier could people actually be? That's where my approach comes in now with intuitive eating, which is really an approach grounded in health at every size, which looks at how can we help people of all sizes improve their well-being, engage in health-promoting behaviors without having to try to lose weight and going on these futile weight cycles? Like I said, we're going to talk a lot about the blocking and tackling of intuitive eating coming up. But I do want to stay at the level of sort of context setting for a minute because another thing you talk about in your book is the roots of diet culture. You know, where did this all come from? Were our hunter-gatherer forebears on the savannah, you know, like striving to achieve ketosis and, you know, <laughs> judging each other based on whether they had visible abs? Like, where did this come from? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. And I think it has a very modern context, actually. Like, we did not see weight loss as a goal or even thinness as a beauty ideal, really, in most societies around the world until the 19th century, really, like when it really started to set in. 
you know, in ancient Greece, the word diet actually comes from the ancient Greek dieta, which is like the ancient Greek word for really it translates more as regime. A lot of people translate it as like lifestyle or way of life, but actually it's sort of more like regime or regimen. It's like the eating and exercise practices you're supposed to follow for well-being and They also include bathing and sexual practices and stuff. But when focusing specifically on food and diet, it was really interesting to see like the rhetoric around people who followed the correct dieta prescribed by ancient Greek doctors were considered to be good upstanding Greeks. And the people who did not follow that diet were described using terms like they're like animals or they're like barbarians because they're not following the correct regimen. And so... That's where we first started to see like a little bit of judgment being placed on what people ate and body size was sort of wrapped up in that too, but it wasn't to the extent that it is today. It was sort of like balance was the ideal that was being aimed for. And if someone was quote unquote too heavy or too small, that was seen as sort of a health defect or an aesthetic defect. And the the goal was to be sort of in the middle, but actually like the body ideal was certainly larger than it is today. But there was this sort of, you know, middle of the road kind of body image ideal. But we really started to see weight loss be something that people strived for or a thinner body be the ideal in the 19th century, in like the mid-1800s. And that's when there was a sort of confluence of factors like the Industrial Revolution and people starting to work in cities and have more sedentary jobs. And there was mass production of clothing where people had to start fitting into standard sizes as opposed to having clothes tailor-made for them. So suddenly there was all this sort of angst around, like, what is all this modern life doing to people? What is the transition from farming to, like, office or factory work doing to people? Really, it was more factory work, I think, back then. With that, there was also, like, separately sort of the rise of evolutionary biology as a discipline. And there was a lot of pre-existing racist beliefs, of course, at that point, that there was supposed hierarchy of races that white Northern European men were the closest thing to God, you know, the closest sort of beings to the divine, and that white Northern European women were kind of a step down, and that Southern European folks, men and then women were a step down, and that people of color from various parts of the world were lower and lower on this supposed hierarchy. And when evolution came on the scene, there was sort of this adoption of that pre-existing hierarchical notion of races, but now it was being used to say white Northern European men are the most evolved, right? They're the furthest along in the evolutionary chain. Obviously, this is all very political and sort of motivated by the people in power wanting to retain their power and believing that people from sub-Saharan Africa were like among the lowest on the evolutionary ladder, conveniently justifying slavery, right? So, you know, with that, the sort of evolutionary idea about the different races There was also this emphasis on like cataloging different parts of the body and body sizes and shapes for people around the world. 
And they started imposing this idea that sub-Saharan Africans or people of color in general were larger bodied and that women were also in general larger bodied. And so therefore, larger bodiedness was not ideal, was something that took you away from the sort of evolutionary ideal of white Northern European man who was deemed to be thin and closest to God and closest to sort of the evolutionary perfectedness of the human being, right? So we started to see these racist ideals come into play really heavily in the 1900s as well. There's a really good book about this called Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings, which I definitely recommend for anyone who wants to really geek out about this subject. But it really started to become clear that there was very explicit recommendations for white women to become thinner or to lose weight or to not allow themselves to gain too much weight in order to not appear like African women or Irish women, interestingly, who were sort of demonized at the time as well. And so it was like, don't be like those African and Irish women. Be thin, be a proper Protestant American lady. And so all of that discourse was very above board. And it's interesting because it all sort of fed into the creation of the diet industry, you know, products and programs that were designed to make people lose weight or supposedly make people lose weight because they really didn't work long term or oftentimes work at all. And so the diet industry really started to take off in the early 1900s and 1920s. It was booming. And it's just sort of continued apace since then. It's continued to grow by leaps and bounds every decade. But the sort of racist roots of it and the explicitness of that, I think, has been obscured in the subsequent decades. Now it's seen as being about health. And that really wasn't the case at the beginning. Doctors really had no interest in helping people lose weight at the beginning and actually thought that it was mere vanity taking away the doctor's attention from more important things that they could be focusing on. That's a whole other story, too, of how the healthcare industry started to get interested in weight loss. But I'll just pause there because this could be a whole separate book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you're working on a separate book about the wellness industrial complex, and you write a little bit in Anti-Diet about how the diet industry is kind of sneaking into areas that we don't think of as being the diet industry. We think of it more as wellness. Right, totally. Yeah, and it's so fascinating to see like how the diet industry has shape-shifted and now cloaks itself in this disguise of wellness. And the wellness culture, as I'm kind of exploring in this book, the second book, goes beyond just food and diet. There's all these other practices and sort of alternative medicine spaces and supplements that are part of wellness culture as well. But I think food and exercise are really central to it. The ideal of wellness that's sort of pervasive in our culture really is a very thin ideal. And it's also typically white and wealthy and young and all of these things. It's a very oppressive sort of ideal. But in terms of how the diet industry has sort of shape-shifted into wellness, I think that's a really fascinating story too, because really around the 1980s and 90s, we started to see this radical shift like away from the low-fat craze, which had sort of dominated, over to the low-carb craze and sort of subsequent disillusionment, I think, on the part of many people in the public with diets in general, because I think there was this sort of moment of realization of like, wow, everything we've been told about food and nutrition and diets and how to lose weight 
maybe was wrong. <laughs> like maybe these decades of low fat dominance, you know, at the time I remember thinking too and having conversations with people about this, like we've been totally led astray, like the low fat sort of high carbohydrate stuff that we've been eating has actually probably made us gain more weight. And oh my God, what have we been doing? And I think that was maybe the start of sort of planting seeds for a lot of people that nutrition science isn't necessarily infallible or always trustworthy or that diets don't necessarily work, right? That the low-fat diet didn't actually produce lasting weight loss for the vast majority of people. Now we know 20 years into the low-carb sort of phenomenon that low-carb diets also don't produce lasting weight loss for the vast majority of people. Again, this is something that has maybe short-term effects, but is not the long-term sustainable solution that people are looking for to help their well-being. And so the diet industry, which by that point was a multi-billion dollar industry, I think started looking for ways to differentiate itself. Diet companies started looking for ways to differentiate themselves from the stuff that was seen not to work or the stuff that was sort of being questioned. And so the rhetoric started to become, you know, this is not any other diet you've tried. This is different. Here's why this is different. And one of the big reasons for that, they said, was like, this is about your health, helping you be the healthiest version of yourself. You need to lose weight for your health. There was also sort of like a rise in anti-obesity rhetoric. And I use the word obesity with big air quotes around it because it's a really stigmatizing term. But around the 1990s to the early 2000s, there was this sort of trumping up of beliefs about so-called obesity, that it was a disease, that it was an epidemic, you know, and the term obesity epidemic started to be used first in scientific journals and CDC reports. And they had these maps that they started using. I'm sure you probably, everybody's seen those maps by now of like obesity rates in the United States, you know, showing the map filling in and getting redder and redder over the years to indicate the growing percentage of people in each state that was in the so-called obese BMI category. With that, suddenly journalists started covering that. News media jumped all over it. There were these, there was a surge in news stories using the rhetoric of the so-called obesity epidemic, where it went from, you know, almost zero to like hundreds of stories within a matter of a couple years. And so I think that's when this idea of weight and health really became linked in the public imagination in a way that they never were before, where it became this like sense of a public health emergency, like, oh my God, we have to do something about America's growing waistline. And with that, the pressure on people to lose weight who were higher weight, who were maybe in that so-called obese category, but also on people who weren't, on people who were worried that maybe they would get there or had been told by their doctors that they were in danger of being so-called overweight. I think all of that sort of created this mass panic for a lot of people in a sense of, okay, we really need to take our health seriously. We really need to do something to get healthier. And what is that? Oh, it's lose weight. But now it was not just about looks. It wasn't just this aesthetic concern. It felt like a matter of life and death. Much more of my conversation with Christy Harrison right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. 
I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Really appreciate all that context. Super fascinating. Now that we've laid that groundwork, let's talk about intuitive eating. What is intuitive eating? So intuitive eating is, I always say, the default mode. It's that really easy, peaceful relationship with food that we're all born with, where we honor our hunger, we feel our fullness, we trust our sense of satisfaction and pleasure. We're able to enjoy our food and really not second guess our choices with food and not feel guilty or ashamed or stigmatized for our food choices. That's the mode that I would love to see everyone be able to get back into in relating to food in their bodies to just have that peaceful, self-compassionate, easy, free relationship with food where it doesn't take up so much headspace, where it's you know, maybe a thought in your day, maybe you have to think about what to make and what to eat, but that it's not an obsession. It's not something that's requiring a ton of planning or self-abnegation or deprivation, that you're able to actually enjoy food and be flexible with food and be present with people and connect over food, have food as a part of celebrations and pleasure, as well as being used for energy and fuel. There's so much to talk about here. 
And I think one way to get us deeper into the whys and wherefores and hows is to play a little clip from our conversation from the anti-diet challenge that we're going to be running on the 10% Happier app. And this first clip is about ending the war with food. So let's listen to that, and then we'll talk a little bit on the other side of it. We're going to talk about ending the war with food. Christy, what does that mean? Yeah, so ending the war with food really means giving yourself unconditional, full permission to eat whatever you want, not just as much as you want, but whatever types of foods you want. Knowing that there's no such thing as good or bad foods, that food doesn't have any morality attached to it, and that your self-worth, your worth as a person is not tied to what you eat. Isn't there evidence, though, that there are foods that are healthier than other foods? So um, a salad is objectively healthier than a cupcake, no? Nutrition is important, certainly, and there are nutritional differences in types of foods. So, you know, we'll get there with intuitive eating. Gentle nutrition is the last principle of intuitive eating for a reason, really, because if you rush nutrition, if you rush into, you know, thinking about those kinds of things, you end up kind of back in the diet culture mindset and the diet mentality that we're trying to get away from. When you deprive people of something, it really does become the forbidden fruit that tastes the sweetest, you know, that um, there's actually evidence that people who've been deprived of chocolatey foods for a week have greater cravings for chocolate at the end of that week. And that um, response is actually higher in the people who are dieters prior to the study. So, you know, dieting in and of itself also increases cravings. So you're not saying throw out all nutrition, throw out all science, just that we should have gentle nutrition because if we get too rigid around it, that's where we can get a little dysregulated. Exactly. It's the rigidity that's the problem because the rigidity really keeps us, you know, striving to get it right. This perfectionism with eating that, you know, ultimately keeps us from finding balance. So we're back now on the podcast conversation. Christy, as I understand it, you're calling for a paradigm shift here from self-control to self-care. That's right. That's right. I always say, you know, a peaceful relationship with food is based on self-care, not self-control. And really, I think that taking care of yourself with food means... Yes, of course, paying attention, some attention to nutrition, and especially if you have medical issues that warrant it, but also paying attention to pleasure, having the ability to be flexible with food, honoring your hunger, not depriving yourself, allowing yourself to eat to fullness and satisfaction, and not getting so caught up in the minutia of nutrition. You know, really gentle nutrition is so much less detailed and so much less full of minutia than nutrition people have learned in diet culture. Counting calories or macros or thinking about carbohydrates or points or, you know, all the different things, all the different numbers that different diets have thrown at us over the years. Or thinking about good and bad foods, you know, that sort of wellness culture style of eating that demonizes certain foods and elevates others. That's very much a hallmark of diet culture too. And with intuitive eating, we're saying to just let all that go, right? Stop approaching food as numbers or as points or as, you know, macros or things to be broken down and calculated. We have to have the flexibility and the autonomy, really, to choose what we want to eat and to be able to eat according to our desires and our sense of pleasure and satisfaction, in addition to thinking about what's going to make my body feel good. I know you hear this all the time, and this was my beef when I first met Evelyn Tribole, who you discussed before. She's one of the progenitors of this notion of, of this approach called intuitive eating. 
if you go back and listen to that podcast, I think it was January of 2020, I believe. You can hear me. I go in super skeptical by the end. I'm utterly converted and actually have been working personally one-on-one with Evelyn since then. It's completely (laughs) changed my approach (laughs) to eating and my approach to, you know, how I talk about food with my son, too. But what one of the skeptical notes I was hitting in that interview, which I know you hear all the time, is, wait a minute, if you tell me there are no good foods and no bad foods, I can eat whatever I want whenever I want it, well, I'm just going to have my face in an Oreo box forever. Right. Yeah. And that is a phase that people sometimes go through. I sometimes call that the honeymoon phase with particular types of foods, right? That you're so excited to have access to those foods again, that it's all you want, that it's, you know, you want to be with those foods 24-7, like the honeymoon phase of a relationship or something. And that also it's part of what I call the restriction pendulum, where when you've been restricted, when you're sort of pulled over to the side of restriction, there's this other side of the pendulum that you swing to that's sort of make-up eating or rebound eating. You can't just sort of expect to settle in the middle at a place of peace when you've been really pulled over to the side of restriction because physics doesn't work like that with a pendulum and, and our bodies don't work like that either. So I think it's definitely really scary. And I want to empathize with the fear that that can bring up of, oh my God, I'm going to never eat anything but Oreos again, or whatever your food of choice is that was maybe previously forbidden. And I'm living proof that you can get to the other side of that, that that's not forever, that you can actually have those foods in your house for months sometimes and not feel like you have to dive to the bottom of the box. Like foods that I thought I could never keep in the house when I was in my disordered eating days are now regular parts of my everyday menu and in my pantry for as long as they want to be, sometimes for months. And not that that's a badge of honor, right, to not eat the food either, because that's just turning intuitive eating into a diet as well to say, oh, yeah, intuitive eating. I'm an intuitive eater, and I just never want this stuff. Like, sometimes you genuinely won't want it, but in a lot of cases, you do still want the foods that were previously forbidden, and then you sort of had the honeymoon phase with. You still eat them, but you're just not eating them in this sort of frenzied or compulsive or like someone who's just crawled through the desert and sees water sort of way. It's a much more balanced, low-key, kind of take-it-or-leave-it sort of way that you relate to those foods. So the trickiest food for me has always been sugar. My parents were quite restrictive when it came to sugar. I had awesome parents, so I don't want to vilify them in any way. They were and are phenomenal, but they were physicians themselves. They were following the evidence, which is that too much sugar for kids is probably not a great idea, or at least the conventional wisdom, let's say. And so I fetishized it as I grew older. And even as a grown-up, I would just kind of eat so much that I would feel awful. I'd be unable to sleep, and then I'd feel terrible the next day. And because I felt terrible and was run down, it would actually kind of put me in the mood to eat more because it made me feel better. And so I would get in these stupid cycles. And it was just boring to think about all the time. And to a large extent, I have broken out of it, but I can still find myself, you know, often I I won't eat it because, you know, like right now, if somebody came in here with a jar of Skittles, I would, actually it wouldn't be a problem right now, but like just say at 8.30 at night, somebody came in with a bunch of candy or uh, some cookies, I would want it. And if I ate it, I would 
actually be unable to sleep. So now I am doing a little bit of restriction in that at 8.30 at night, I'm not gonna have a bunch of candy even if I want it because I know how bad it's gonna make me feel. And sometimes in those moments, I feel like I'm not really doing intuitive eating correctly. Yeah, it's so tricky, right? Like I think the intention is really what it comes down to. And intention can be so complicated sometimes. So I think, you know, the intention of self-care, right? I'm hearing you say that there's a real intention of self-care there. And I think that's definitely in line with intuitive eating. Like I said, self-care, not self-control, right? But is there also a flavor of self-control? Is there also some sense of like, this is bad, not just I'll feel bad if I eat this. And so I genuinely don't want it, but like, I'll be bad if I eat this. And so I shouldn't have it. Because I think if that's there, not that there's a right or wrong with intuitive eating, because intuitive eating is about sort of experimentation and figuring out what works for you, not following these black and white, right or wrong sort of rules. But to the extent that that maybe sense of self-control is still there, would it feel more intuitive? Would it feel more sort of expansive and self-compassionate and just in line with your other values, maybe, if you sort of were able to let go of that last little vestige of self-control and just sort of really approach it from self-care? Because when I think about sort of equivalence to that in my life, like right now I'm pregnant, (laughs) seven months pregnant, and I've actually had acid reflux or GERD since my disordered eating days. I think that's when it first appeared when I was first diagnosed. And it's really kind of come and gone since then, even after recovering from disordered eating with stress or with wearing too tight clothes or having pressure on my stomach as I do now with the baby. So it's gotten really bad. Like the heartburn in the last couple months has just been pretty gnarly. And so there's lots of foods that I typically love that I now look at and I'm kind of like, oh, I don't want that. Like that doesn't sound good to me because I know what it's going to do. You know, I know the feeling it's going to create. And that sort of come about through trial and error, through like being like, I can eat whatever I want. I can eat, you know, I'll eat this. I don't want to trigger anyone by saying particular foods, but, you know, I'll eat X food and um, it'll be fine. And then it's like two Pepsids later and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, or what happened? Why can't I eat this food that I typically was able to eat with no problem right before? And so now it's sort of an embodied experience, actually. It's this sense of like, eh, that really doesn't sound good. And it's a visceral kind of full body thing. It doesn't feel like it's coming from my head. It doesn't feel like it's a war between what I want and what I feel like I should have. It's just, yeah, okay, I'm going to not have that. And that's not to say that that happens every single time, right? Like when I was at my baby shower and they had this delicious cake for me, I was like, well, cake probably isn't going to sit very well, but it's my baby shower. My husband's aunt went to great trouble to get this delicious cake. And so I'm going to have it. And I had a little heartburn afterwards, but it was fine. So that's not to say that you have to kind of follow your body's cues at all costs or that you can't choose something different sometimes too. Just thinking about that sense of like an embodied no versus a no to a particular food that's coming from your head or from a place of like, I shouldn't do this. And is there a corresponding warring part of you that's like, but I want it. Because I think that's where maybe it's a little less intuitive and still coming more from that place of self-control, if that makes sense. It does. 
I don't want to dwell too much on my own personal story here, but just to close the loop on it, I actually don't have the story anymore that sugar is bad. I don't stop myself from eating it because I think it's, I don't like the whatever ramifications it might have on my waistline or that it's going to violate some rules of some diet somewhere. So I don't actually, I used to, but I don't anymore. Evelyn has liberated me from that. But it does take some self-control. 8.30 at night, 9 o'clock at night, I'm tired. We have plenty of candy around the house. My wife had the very wise intuition that keeping it around and not making it forbidden for my son would have a positive impact. And she was right. My son does not fetishize candy in any way. So I see some candy as I'm watching TV or reading a book and I want it. I'm not thinking that it's evil, but there is some self-control required to remember this is going to have ramifications that will be unpleasant for you and compound for you into the next day. So intellectually, I kind of talk myself out of it. So anyway, I say that just to close the loop on it. But to get away from me for a second and to really address people who are listening who are new to intuitive eating, can you talk on the most basic sort of blocking and tackling level? What is different in the mind of an intuitive eater in a meal? How are you approaching the meal differently than the rest of us? Such a good question. I think the first word that comes to mind is just ease. Like there's just so much more ease with it. There's so much more of a sense of like not a big deal. This is food. Maybe I'm excited about it. Maybe it smells good or maybe I'm curious but wary. You know, it's a new food that I'm, I've never tried before and someone else made it or, you know, there might be other sort of feelings going on, right, about the food and about the meal. But there's not this sense of guilt or the sort of self-control that goes into, you know, when you're a dieter sitting down to a meal, it's like, oh, I'm going to eat this, but I'm not going to eat that. I'm only going to have half of this. I'm going to set this portion aside to take home with me, whatever little rules that you've sort of picked up along the way in diet culture. There's just not that sort of sense of calculation of intellectualizing with it. It's much more of a, I guess, again, embodied experience, right? Where it's like, this smells good. What are the flavors? You know, how hungry am I? How much do I want based on my hunger? Sensing your satisfaction with the meal, sensing when you're starting to get full, not having any sort of self-judgments about that too, right? Or I think sometimes with intuitive eating in the early stages, people who start to sense fullness will start getting sad and sort of have this feeling like, no, being full means I have to stop, means I have to like give this up or I'm not allowed to have any more or something like that. But with intuitive eating, there's not that sense of guilt. There's once you've gone through maybe the sort of mourning process of like allowing your fullness to sort of drive how much more you're going to eat. There's not a sense of sadness necessarily when the meal's over, although if it tastes really delicious, of course, there's probably going to be some sense of like, oh, I wish I could keep eating this. It's so good. But yeah, it's really just a much more relaxed approach to food and it doesn't require as much intellectualizing, planning, self-shaming guilt. There are not as many voices that maybe come from a scolding parent or from 
a diet that you were on a million years ago or with diet culture, I think there's often this accumulation of different diet rules. So even if someone's not on a particular diet now, they have all these rules in their head from diets they were previously on, or even if they are on a particular diet now, it's like I'm doing Atkins, but I'm also still counting calories, but I'm also still trying to eat low fat or whatever it is, right? There's just much less noise in your head. You described intuitive eating as more relaxed, more easeful, but there is some work, especially at the beginning, of learning how to pay attention to the food and to your body as you're eating it, sort of your satiety cues, how full are you? There's a emphasis, as I understand it, on mindfulness to the extent that you are tasting and smelling the food as opposed to reflexively shoveling or hunting around your plate with your fork as you're chewing so that you're like kind of doing two things at once. So there is some, maybe you don't like the word work, but it is a practice to a certain extent. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I guess I was sort of giving like the ultimate vision of intuitive eating, like kind of what it can be when you're really clicked into it or when you've been practicing it for a long time. But yeah, the truth is when you're first starting out with intuitive eating, it is work. It is a lot of effort there. Just like with meditation, with sort of the early days of meditation, I think the instructions and the paying attention to your breath is so much more effortful than it becomes when you've been practicing for years. The practice of intuitive eating that Evelyn teaches, that I teach, is a little more structured. There's 10 principles to it. You don't have to necessarily practice them in order, although I really like to sort of have that structure, that order, because I think they kind of build on one another. And I really like having gentle nutrition as the last principle, the 10th and last principle, because I think if people approach nutrition too early on in their process, they can definitely just turn it into another diet rule. It's really not gentle nutrition at that point. It's rigid nutrition. So I think having it at the end is helpful. But the 10 principles, if it's helpful to hear, just for anyone who hasn't heard that, it's reject the diet mentality is the first, really the foundational principle, I think, because it's about kind of becoming mindful of all those diet rules that you have in your head and being aware of the harms of diet culture and how dieting has led you astray in the past, sort of building your desire for a different way, a different approach. And the second is honoring your hunger, which is super important and foundational as well, because a lot of people are very disconnected from their hunger at first, especially if they've been dieting for a long time. But when you can start to notice your hunger and maybe more subtle signs of hunger that come up before you feel your stomach growling, before you feel that sort of classical sign of hunger. And so learning to honor those really helps you not be on that restriction pendulum so that you can then start to feel more at peace and less driven to that rebound eating. Make peace with food is the next principle, and that's really about not having foods be off limits, challenging these ideas of good and bad foods, and allowing yourself to have all foods so that you're not in that deprivation mindset with them. Challenge the food police is the next principle. And that's really about talking back to those voices in your head that are enforcing diet culture's rules, right? Telling you you're bad for eating certain foods or that you're not allowed to have more of something or that you have to do X, Y, and Z to atone for what you've eaten. And so it's about kind of that mental self-talk, right? And challenging that inner critic and have a much more self-compassionate way of talking to yourself. The next principle is feeling your fullness, which 
is a tricky one, I think, for people just coming into intuitive eating. And I think it's really nice. It's not one of the early principles to focus on. It's actually a little further along because one pitfall I see with people who are just starting with intuitive eating is turning it into what my colleague Isabel Fox and Duke calls the hunger and fullness diet, where it's like, it's a diet whose rules are, I must only eat when I'm exactly this amount of hungry. I have to stop as soon as I'm this amount of full. I'm not allowed to eat for any other reason, right? And so it can get very restrictive. And so really feeling your fullness is about tuning into the sensations, the sort of getting in touch with that interoceptive awareness of like, how does your body tell you it's full, right? How does your body signal to you that it's had enough? And not that you necessarily have to stop eating at exactly that moment when you first feel signs of fullness, but it's a sign that, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm kind of getting towards full. And that's the good thing, right? Getting to fullness is a positive thing because it means you're nourishing your body. The satisfaction factor is the next principle. I think actually they flipped those two in the last edition of the book. So satisfaction comes first, but the satisfaction factor is really about allowing yourself to have foods you enjoy and really taking pleasure in food for its own sake, but also having pleasure for the sake of well-being because it actually helps you feel better. It helps your overall well-being to be satisfied and then respecting your body which is a really important principle. Respecting your body's limitations, its needs. And that's where things like consideration of medical conditions can come into play. That's where like when I think about my heartburn or acid reflux, or maybe when you think about how something is going to make you feel and you sort of are making food choices around that piece of self-care, but it's also respecting your body without this sort of imposition of like how my body should look, how it's, you know, supposed to function, right? Respecting like what is, what what is with your body. So it's natural size, it's shape, it's abilities, it's disabilities, chronic illnesses, you know, respecting all of that and not necessarily loving your body, right? Because I think it's hard sometimes to jump from self-loathing to self-love. But I think body respect is a helpful sort of stop on that train where you're sort of declaring a truce with your body, right? You're not at war with it or trying to wrestle it into submission. And then exercise, feel the difference, right? Feeling the difference with movement, I should say. So moving your body in ways that feel good, in ways that feel joyful and not designed to shrink or, um, again, wrestle your body into submission, right? Not, not in ways that are designed to make you look a certain way or having to hit certain goals. So learning to engage with movement from a place of self-care rather than self-control, again. And then finally, gentle nutrition. The gentle nutrition piece, again, it sort of fits in with that body respect, right? But it also builds on all the other principles. So you're not doing nutrition from a place of diet culture. You're not doing nutrition and ignoring your hunger. You're not doing nutrition and ignoring your satisfaction and pleasure, right? You're incorporating all of these other principles with your nutrition choices and making gentle nutrition choices that are about helping you have energy, right? Helping you feel sustained and satisfied at the end of a meal. So it might be adding more of something, right? It's like, let's add a carb here because... I know that that helps keep me full and satisfied or let's add a vegetable because I know that's going to help with digestion or help me get the vitamins I need, but not making it 
this sort of minute, intellectualized fixation that it is in diet culture. Much more of my conversation with Christy Harrison right after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. I want to do one last clip from the anti-diet challenge that, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be running on the 10% Happier app. In the clip that we're about to listen to, we talk about emotional eating, which is a phrase you used early, early on in this conversation that I think sometimes, I think you would argue gets a bad rap. So let's just listen to that clip and we'll talk a little bit on the other side. We're going to talk about emotional eating, which, Christy, gets a pretty bad rap. It really does, yeah. And, you know, I think intuitive eating is all about not demonizing emotional eating. So sometimes eating for comfort or eating for distraction are part of a peaceful relationship with food. And sometimes chronic hunger can also spark emotions that make us feel like we're eating emotionally when we're actually just hungry. You, you say that sometimes people who are emotionally eating are actually just deprived? Yeah, absolutely. So deprivation can drive this sense of, you know, hanger is kind of a common um, emotion that we associate with being too hungry, but, you know, other emotions as well, like, you know, feeling, um, having a low mood, you know, feeling depressed or anxious. Um, there's lots of emotions that, that can come up when we're chronically deprived and not eating enough. And 
the common response to emotional eating and diet culture, I think, is to say, well, do something instead of eating to distract yourself or take yourself away from, you know, don't eat food, do this instead. Um, but actually, the intuitive eating response is, what can we do in addition to eating? Because oftentimes, deprivation really is at the root of it. So how can we address the deprivation, take care of our need for food, and take care of whatever else might be coming up for us? So this reminds me of a conversation I had with Evelyn Tribble a while ago. I came to her somewhat sheepishly and said, I think I'm kind of cheating on some of the intuitive eating because I don't really eat breakfast much, not because of a deprivation thing, but because I, I like to have a clear mind in the morning for meditation and exercise. And so I'm pretty present for lunch and for dinner, but often I'll find 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, I'm I'm hungry, even though I know I'm not really hungry, but it's just, you know, that sort of lull in the day. I'm watching TV or reading a book, and it's when I described earlier that I might reach for candy, but I usually don't have the candy because I know it'll mess up my sleep. But I might have like a bunch of pretzel sticks or something like that, even though I'm not hungry, just because, I don't know, I'm a little bored and it's somewhat comforting to have a little salty snack. And I remember describing all of this to her, and she was like, what's the problem? And often I'll be eating in front of the TV, which, by the way, is not something that's encouraged in intuitive eating. It's really about like eating a meal with another person or eating a meal with no other distractions so you can be, you know, right there for the sensations of the eating. And again, she was just like, what's the problem with that? So <laughs> what's your take on that overly long description I just delivered? I mean, I really agree with her. I would say, like, what's the problem? I think with intuitive eating, like, in sort of that early stage, right, when it's like the learning to drive the car, hands at 10 and 2, like, yes, not having distractions and not eating in front of the TV or whatever is helpful for learning to tune into your body and being more mindful and stuff. But once you've practiced that a bit and you sort of understand how to do that, I think eating in front of the TV or eating with other distractions isn't really a problem. And I think even in the early stages, honestly, it isn't really a problem and sometimes is necessary if you're going to get eating done. Like a lot of us have to eat at our desks at work while working. And, you know, that's just part of kind of the reality of a lot of workplaces or deadlines and things like that. And so if it's a choice between not eating until you're extremely hungry or eating at your desk while working, there's really no problem to me with eating at your desk while working or eating in front of the TV or whatever it is. And I think you can definitely tune into your desire for food, your sense of satisfaction and pleasure, your sense of flavors and textures of the food, even while distracted, right? Even while in front of the TV, you can sort of dip in and out of that awareness. But yeah, I think thinking of it as like, this is bad, I shouldn't be doing this, or I'm not really hungry, so why am I eating with intuitive eating, we're trying to get rid of all the guilt, right? We're trying to not feel guilty or ashamed about any way that we're relating to food. And in, you know, the case you're describing, it sounds like, I wonder if there maybe is a little bit of hunger, a little bit of physical need there at the end of a long day. Like people that do tend to need snacks throughout the day, especially if you've skipped breakfast, maybe you're going to be sort of hungrier later in the day. And maybe it's a really subtle level of hunger where it's not stomach growling again, but it's thinking about food, thinking, oh, this sounds really good right now. That is a form actually sometimes of 
hunger that, you know, your brain is telling you. Maybe it's not a sort of obvious physical sensation, but your body and your brain really do work together to give hunger signals. And so sometimes hunger signals come from the brain in the form of thinking about food, right? But, you know, it could also be just a need for pleasure and comfort and unwinding at the end of a long day, and there's nothing wrong with that either. So, yeah, I would say it really isn't a problem when you're eating in those ways and that I think all of us, even pretty seasoned intuitive eaters, even people who've been lucky enough to be intuitive eaters their whole lives, sometimes eat for those reasons, sometimes eat for comfort and pure pleasure and just a little bit of a distraction or escape at the end of a day or something like that. And there's really nothing wrong with that. You know, when emotional eating maybe becomes an issue for people is when it feels like it's the only coping mechanism they have for difficult emotions. And also when there's deprivation driving it that needs to be addressed, like what can I do in addition to eating to take care of these emotions? Beyond that, I think there's lots of ways that we all eat that maybe feel quote-unquote emotional in some sense that actually aren't a really big deal. This has been so interesting. And even though intuitive eating isn't new to me, I just, it's so valuable to hear all of this stuff again and to see many of the old ways of thinking that were pounded into me by the culture are still there for me. And just hearing you talk has really kind of revivified my dedication to this practice. So I really appreciate you coming on. In closing, can you just quickly plug everything you do so that if people want to learn more about you and from you, they can? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to find me online is my website, which is christyharrison.com. I wrote a book called Anti-Diet, the book we've been talking about. I did a course with you on the 10% Happier app that you can find there. I have other courses on my website. I do a 13, well, it's 13 modules, but really it's sort of a lifetime access course on intuitive eating if you want to kind of have a longer course in this. I do private coaching as well, though not as much at the moment because I'm working on my next book. And I have a podcast of my own as well called Food Psych, which you can find on my website or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Oh, and I have a card deck actually that just came out called the Making Peace with Food card deck that is 59 anti-diet strategies, just kind of like bite-sized little strategies to help you make peace with food in your body that I co-authored with a therapist named Judith Matz. So info about all of that is on my website, christyharrison.com, and then the 10% Happier app as well. You've done lots of stuff, and I know you've got another big project coming in the form of a book, and you've got an even bigger project coming in the form of a baby. So thank you for doing this interview while very, very pregnant. Not the easiest thing to do, but appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thanks again to Christy. Remember, join us for the Anti-Diet Challenge over on the 10% Happier app. That challenge starts Monday, December 6th, right in time for the Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, New Year's parties. Download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps and start a free trial to join the challenge. This show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wirtel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering from our good friends over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.